Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Human Circus. We begin with an excerpt from the Menologium. A Menologium. A calendar poem with its days of the months, its saints' days. We begin, as it appears in Eleanor Parker's book, Winters in the World. After All Saints' Day comes Winter's Day, far and wide, six nights later, and seizes the sun-bright autumn with its army of ice and snow, fettered with frost by the Lord's command, so that the green fields may no longer stay with us, the ornaments of the earth. We are, as I write this, and even more as you hear it, well past All Saints' Day, the first of November, sliding away into the distant fog of the pre-festive season as we enter the new year. However, the world outside my window has not yet been seized by those icy armies of the old English poem. No frosty fetters hold in captivity its tree limbs and blades of grass. Indeed, the weather is unseasonably warm here, as I'm writing, and though that could certainly change any day now, it's looking very much like another year where I won't bother dragging out the winter coat, and a couple of pretty light layers are going to comfortably do. But though it might not feel like it just yet, at least not here in Vancouver, it is very firmly winter. You can tell from the lights on the houses and on the tree across the room from me, which will stay a few days still, from the ever-present Christmas music of recent weeks now departing. Today's episode is not really a Christmas one, There's no talk of Santa Claus, or further mentions of Mariah Carey beyond this one. So this is not a delayed holiday special, but it is about winter. Hello and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the history podcast that, today's topic aside generally focuses on the stories of medieval travelers and the histories around them. 
a history podcast that is supported by a Patreon, where you can listen early, ad-free, and to extra mini-episodes at patreon.com forward slash human circus. And you can do so for as little as a dollar a month, or as much as makes sense for you. Thank you, everyone who has done so in 2023. And thank you, Oscar Rodriguez, for most recently coming aboard. And now, as I generally say at this point, back to the story. Except, it's not really a story this time. More of a ramble. A pleasant ramble through winter. Here where I am, the imagery of winter around me is overwhelmingly that of Christmas. Whether it's presents, trees, or holiday movies that I'll likely never see. Unless, of course, they happen to be The Snowman, or A Charlie Brown Christmas, each of which I watch once a year. But as Parker notes in her book, and as I think we have touched on in a Patreon post at some point, the season in old English sources is often associated with something quite different. It's the imagery of marching armies which conquer the land and hold it captive. They hold it in their icy grip for a time, only surrendering their grasp on it and its people with the coming of spring. So it was in those lines which I read at the opening of this episode. And so it is also in the old English poem, Andreas. In that telling of the Acts of St. Andrew, the saint is cast as a kind of heroic warrior, one who hears one day the voice of God, and is given a task appropriate to this podcast. You must travel, the voice tells him, bearing your peace, seeking out a journey where the self-eaters defend their domain and hold their homeland through murdercraft. You must then set out on a journey, bearing your spirit into the grip of furious men where a war struggle will be offered to you through the rushing crash of battle, through the warcraft of warriors. You must mount a ship at once with the dawn, even at next morrow at the seashore, and on the cold water burst forth over the bathway. Have my blessing across my middle earth, wherever you go. At one point in his adventurous travels, Andrew is taken prisoner. A malignant enemy holds him, having come with a measureless toast of shameful loresmiths and a crowd of shield-bearers. They dragged him, daring-minded and stout-hearted, across hillscarps and along rocky slopes, even as widely as where the old paths were lying, the work of giants within their cities. Streets stone-paved. They leave him sodden with sore wounds, bedewed with blood, his bone house broken. And in that state, he is beset with cunning wiles the whole night, an earl courage hard under the gloom shade, as he contemplates the wintry storm described in these words. Snow bound the earth in winter tumults. 
The skies grew cold, with hard hail showers, and ice and frost, hoary battle marchers, locked up the homeland of men, the dwelling of the people. The lands were frozen, with cold and chilly icicles. The forces of the waters was shrunken. Across the river currents, ice built a bridge, a dark sea road. The language of winter's bonds was often used, Parker says, to illustrate such restraints of a more literal kind. The imprisoned saint beset the winter-cold night long, and the land itself held in chains by cold icicles of rime or frost, to use the wording of another translation, that of Aaron Hostetter. And the wording is lovely. Magical even, if bleak, with its lands and waters locked up by white war-steppers, in Hostetter's version, hoary battle-marchers in Parker's. Parker points to the old English original here. Herr Hildstappen, I'll say, slash, guess, with apologies to those with some sense of old English pronunciation. She points out how the hair part, as in the whore of hoarfrost, is also a word for people gray and old. So we get this image of grim and grizzled, icy old warriors on their march across the land. They only relinquish their winnings of war with the end of their campaigning season, when the people may fully return to life outside and reclaim what is theirs. If the old English language around winter is lovely, and I think it is, the experience of which it tells is often clearly not. It is not something to be enjoyed, but rather to be endured. That's how it is for St. Andrew, and for another prisoner, the heroic smith Wayland, who must suffer his hamstrings cut through winter-cold misery before he can make his escape by crafting magical wings. Winter is a destructive force, as also seen in another source, a poem in which a pagan speaks in riddling verse to a wise king, a bit of a classic setup, and says to him, quote, But why does the snow fall, hide the ground, conceal the shoots of plants? bind up fruits, crush and repress them, so that they are for a time shriveled with cold. Very often, too, he puts many wild beasts to the test. He builds a bridge over the water, breaks the city gate, proceeds boldly on, and plunders. All of this, Winter does, before its deeds are cut short by the loss of that part of the manuscript, before it can tear into the building's walls with icy fingers, burst the doors of homes, and steal into the rooms within to pin the folk with hands of frost. And that is somewhat the tone of how winter has appeared on this podcast, too, as a destructive power, or a restrictive force. Its coming affected the plans of Ibn Fadlan on his way north. 
and his experience of it was one of hellishly cold temperatures. Cheek, frozen to pillow in the morning. Beard after the bathhouse, quickly becoming a block of ice. Trees, cracking in the bitter air. It froze other travelers, too. Ones such as Roy Gonzalez de Clavijo, stuck where he was in Para, with no ship to be found that would carry him into the Black Sea until the weather had warmed. And in that same series, we talked of how Ibn Arab Shah had written of Timur readying his men against the broad swords of ice and sharp spears of cold. Though his preparations for the coming campaign against China, and the weather that would entail, would not be enough. Those lands in winter, quote, appeared like the plain of the Last Judgment, or a sea which God forged out of silver. And when the breath of the wind blew on the breath of man, it quenched his spirit and froze him on his horse. Many perished of his army, noble and base alike, and winter destroyed great and small among them, and their noses and ears fell off, scorched by cold. And winter ceased not to attack, and poured against them wind and seas, until it had submerged them, while they wandered in weakness. William the Franciscan, on his way to see Batu Khan, was warned by the man who was to escort him that, quote, It is a four-month journey, and the cold there is so intense that rocks and trees split apart with the frost. See whether you can bear it. And if he couldn't, he was informed, then he would be abandoned to a cold death. William and his companion would find the journey every bit as bad as advertised. And when they eventually reached the territory of Monka Khan, the depiction of winter there was, if anything, even harsher. Winter held great military campaigns in check, was something to simply be waited out by this crusading army or that, wherever they might find themselves, and was one of the factors that drove Salah Adin from Tyre. In the saga of Grettir the Strong, the season likewise formed a pause in traffic, a period in which to stay where you were, with the ships to and from Norway, not expected until spring. It formed the stage on which Grettir could perform his superhuman feats, swimming the rivers of freezing cold, while others huddled powerless where they were. It was also a time when hauntings became most violent and troublesome, the risen dead coming also with the time of Christmas. Winter, broadly speaking, for the subjects of this podcast, has been something to be avoided. And all of this talk very much puts me in mind of Adam Gopnik's Massey Lectures book, Winter. Five Windows on the Season. In it, he writes of how our view of winter shifts as we come to secure ourselves from its effects. 
Winter's persona changes, he says, with our perception of safety from it. The romance of winter is possible only when we have a warm and secure indoors to retreat to, and winter becomes a season to look at, as much as one to live through. Gopnik's wintry comforts are, of course, not enjoyed by all, even in the present. And those old English sources, and the travelers of this podcast, were likewise not yet in the look-at stage. They were closer to directly confronting the dreary prospects described in quite miserable terms by Samuel Johnson. The naked hill, the leafless grove, the hoary ground, the frowning skies. They were a long way removed from William Cowper's 1783 poem, in which he addresses winter itself in very fond terms, concluding with these words. I crown thee, winter, king of intimate delights, fireside enjoyments, home-born happiness, and all the comforts that the lowly roof of undisturbed retirement and the hours of long, uninterrupted evening, no. Cowper's is a very modern winter, in a sense, one of coziness, we would now say, but it's one of idyllic pleasures that feel to me now a little distant. Distant from when Cowper wrote to a friend that, quote, there is hardly to be found upon earth so snug a creature as an Englishman by the fireside in the winter, if not quite as distant as Wayland's winter-cold misery. I suppose it's just that something of the nature of the home-born happiness has changed since Cowper's own undisturbed retirement. But the idea of a cozy warmth from which to look out at the cold remains. An us inside, and an all that outside. There is something of a similar spirit to the 19th century poem, St. Martin's Eve, by John Clare. Martinmas, on November 11th, for many, marked the beginning of the winter season, for many years. And Clare's opening lines beautifully set the tone for a certain kind of late autumnal contemplation. Now that the year grows wearisome with age, he writes, and days grow short, and nights excessive long. Rude winds, he says, have done the landscape great ill, and the woods are desolate of song. The skies are empty, and the only bird call is that of the lone and melancholy crane, who like a traveler lost the right road seeks in vain. The children rush indoors from threatening weather. They wish for the sun to make its appearance. But, Claire writes, winter's imprisonment is all begun. Yet while all outside is gray and lifeless, with the imagery of imprisonment very similar to those medieval sources, inside, in Claire's poem, there is joy still. For spite of all the melancholy moods, quote, 
The fireside evening owns increasing charms, but with the tales and eldern wine that warms, in purple bubbles by the blazing fire, of simple cots and rude old-fashioned farms, they feel as blessed as joys can well desire, and midnight often joins before the guests retire. As someone who grew up in a house with a fireplace, it's becoming clearer and clearer in reading for this episode that the fireplace is something that's really lacking from my adult experience of winter. As the Claire poem continues, there are more scenes of warmth and comfort, of apples roasting by the fire, again the fire, and a pitcher of creaming ale warming with nutmeg which I honestly don't know how appealing that is, but I'd be willing to give it a go. Going back to Gopnik for a moment, I'm interested in the thread of fascination he finds with winter. It's not just something to hide away from in gentle comfort, but also a source of wonder and awe. It's the sight that moves Coleridge to write home to his wife that, quote, but when the first ice fell on the lake, one huge piece of thick, transparent glass, oh my god, what sublime scenery I have beheld. It's the romantic contemplation of ice blooms on the windows. And it's there, that fascination and awe, in some of the older sources too, which we again find in Parker's book. There was a wonder on the wave, one line reads. Water turned to bone. There are fetters of frost in another source. But we also read that water wears a helmet, wondrously locking up shoots in the earth. Things are being locked up still, but it's wondrous this time. Hail, in another source, is the whitest of grains. It whirls down from the air of the sky. Gusts of wind toss it about. Afterwards, it turns into water. Destructive and enchaining force is not winter's characteristic that takes center stage here, but rather the power of transformation, something necessary and natural, a wonder and a marvel. So it wasn't all bleak. And that's good, because I don't want to end this on a bleak note. This last bit of podcasting for the year 2023. The world of the present seems incredibly grim to me. And without sugarcoating or rose-tinting the past, I do like this podcast to be a bit of a break from that. For me, and for you. So I'll end with one last vision of winter. And there is going to be a medieval connection here, if only a somewhat tenuous one. It's a winter album that I grew up with, one that was playing year after year, winter after winter, around the house, and one which I still play now, when in season. It's called To Drive the Cold Winter Away by Lorena McKennett, and there is a medieval connection there, in the traditional songs it includes, such as the Wexford Carol. But what I'll read here is not from one of those. It is instead 
from 19th century Canadian poet Archibald Lampman, whose poem, Snow, McKenna sings on that album, doing so rather more nicely, I have to say, than I'm about to read it, and doing so with some changes to the original poem, the one which I'll be reading from here. White are the far-off plains, and white the fading forests grow. The wind dies out along the height, and denser still the snow. A gathering weight on roof and tree falls down scarce audibly. The road before me smooths and fills apace and all about. The fences dwindle, and the hills are blotted slowly out. The naked trees loom spectrally into the dim white sky. The meadows and far-sheeted streams lie still without a sound. Like some soft minister of dreams, the snowfall hoods me round. In wood and water, earth and air, a silence everywhere. And that, I think is a good place to leave our winter ramble, and also the podcast for 2023. Thank you very much for joining me this year on the various journeys we took. Thank you for your ears and your kind attention and your support. I hope you enjoyed a happy holiday season in whatever form your celebrations took. And I wish you a happy New Year's. I'll see you back here in 2024, and I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.